things have been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands, my God. You know, I count it a privilege and an honor to be standing here this morning. And the preparation leading to this moment is challenging and inspiring. It's exhausting and convicting. I was always a terrible student. Reading is usually a chore, and it's a struggle to process what I've read. My wife actually believes I have undiagnosed dyslexia, and she might be right. Um, That may explain why my mind wanders as I read, even as my eyes pass over the words of the page. And I say all that to set up a glimpse into my mind as I was preparing. I read through the book of Ezra a bunch of times as I was getting ready for this. That's short, so that's not so amazing as it sounds. But every time I got to chapter 8, there was always this one verse that dropped me completely out of my reading. Chapter 8, verse 10 says, And then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Zechariah, and Meshullam, leading men, and for Joreb and Elnathan, who were the men of insight. Just how many Elnathans this guy know? And what about poor just Nathan? What the L was going on with that guy? Yeah, thank you. So the funny thing is, is as I was thinking this, first of all, I was seeing it all in cartoon, and I was seeing all of these guys as they were being named, with L. Nathan doing the ancient version of photobombing, showing up in behind all these other guys. And I saw it all with cartoons and Scooby-Doo sound effects. This is what happens to me as I'm reading. And by the time I realize what has happened, I've already, I'm already halfway through nine and I have to back up and start over. Okay. So, <clears throat> struggle is real, brothers. Struggle is real. But now we're focused on Ezra, chapter nine. And the first thing, I, I broke the passage down into parts. Okay, first, the problem. Some of the people, including the leaders, the priests and Levites, have intermarried with people from other nations with their, some versions say, detestable practices, some say abominations. And then you've got the players. God, who is sin prophet, Ezra. You've got the officials, which we'll call the whistleblowers. You've got the sinners, who are the people, the priests and Levites who have intermarried. And you've got the foreign spouses who ostensibly are the sources of this sin. And then I began asking questions. Why were foreign marriages prohibited? Was Ezra's response an overreaction? And I'm not an ancient Jew, so is there some takeaway for me here? 
right? We want to be careful not to read ourselves into ancient history. Now, it's worth noting before we dive into Ezra, there was about five months that Ezra was there before this subject even came up. Now, do you think he was completely unaware of the presence of foreign spouses in his midst? Now, Ezra's mission was to teach the Word of God. His mandate was, it wasn't like Jonah's. God didn't call Ezra as his mouthpiece to Jerusalem to call the sinners to repentance. Ezra spoke the Holy Scriptures, and God began to move in the hearts of those called to rebuild the temple. And when Ezra was formally made aware of the issue, his response was not to call down God's wrath on the sinners, but to call to God for mercy and forgiveness. Now, not to steal his thunder next week, but it's worth noting that God did the real work of conviction here. Now, let's look at the problem and the questions it raises. Some of the Jews, even some of the secular and spiritual leaders among them, were married with people from other nations. In and of itself, was not without precedent in history. Even Moses had a foreign wife. But there's an extra little phrase included along with this statement that changes everything. With their abominations. And this is where the prohibition comes into light. There are several places in Exodus and Deuteronomy that Israel not to intermarry. But I'm going to read to you one that I think explains a lot. Exodus 34, 11 to 16. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god but the Lord. Because the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitant. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Dude, don't be shy. Not it. I think it's clear from this and other passages, that the prohibition against intermarriage is not racially motivated. It's not about skin or language or geography. It's about spiritual pollution. Deuteronomy 12, 29 and 31 is a warning. When the Lord your God off before you, the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, hey, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord way, for every abomination, abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. You know, the word abominable here in Deuteronomy is the same one that's used in Ezra. Even here, at the moment of their return to Jerusalem, the people failed direction given to them before they had entered the promised land, before the exile. 
Now, I, I know this word abomination. You probably do too. But just for curiosity, I went ahead and looked it up. <clears throat> oh, the word abomination means a thing that causes disgust or hatred. There's some other words that kind of mean the same thing. Atrocity, obscenity, horror, disgrace, revulsion. Well, that seems like a pretty strong word. This naturally asked, led me to ask why. Why such a strong word for what these marriages introduced into Israel? <clears throat> now, I think there's no surprises here to most of us that the, these religions from these various nations and cultures were polytheistic, meaning they worshipped multiple gods, scores of gods, even thousands of gods. You know, worship sometimes, even often, included ritual worship sex or child sacrifice. Sympathetic magic was the word of the day. Sympathetic magic was a kind of ritual using objects or actions resembling or symbolically associated with the event or person over which one sought influence. Even the Hittites and the Egyptians and some of the others deified people d during or even after death. Knowing this, it's not hard to understand Ezra's reaction. He tore his cloak and then his tunic. He pulled hair from his head and beard and sat, for stupor, sat in a stupor for hours. Here we see Ezra in deep mourning and lament for his people. Now, how... How much stress does a guy have to be in? How much does a person have to feel before he can pull the hair out of his beard? Ezra's response was not an overreaction. He understood the precipice the nation of Israel stood before. He understood that God was giving them a reason to hope for a better future as a people, as the people of the one true God, but they were on the brink of throwing it all away. Israel was once a mighty people, but they traded it away for the pleasures, the distractions, the approval of this world, and it was all taken away. Ezra understood that tolerated evil equals terminated embrace. And so he confessed in the hope that God would not once more turn away. What was at stake was the very future of the people of Israel. One commentator put it this way, a covenant community that allows its leaders to adopt a lifestyle that threatens the central covenant Torah traditions is sacrificing the future. You see, these polytheistic cultic religions had a worldview that sought to explain both, both the mundane and the mysterious by giving divine attributes to objects and circumstances. The divine was a reflection of humanity. At best, this is cynical. At worst, it's evil. These false religions were at their core selfish, and they sought to influence the divine for their own advantage. Israel, however, was called to a different path, a true path where the divine is inexplicable and exists outside and above humanity, which is its reflection of the divine. Worship of Yahweh is at its core selfless. It seeks to reflect the glory and glorify the one true God, even at its own expense. What I realized as I read article after article about religions and pantheons is that they had across the board some, some basic 
similarities. They were all flexible and contextual. And this contamination is what the people of Israel, these these returning exiles, were inviting in by intermarrying with the pagan nations. In their homes, inviting into the lives of their families, their children, their future generations. The previous kings had even invited this contamination into the very temple the exiles were there to rebuild. Their future was on the line. And no, I don't think Ezra's reaction was He longed for God to once again show favor to his chosen people. So he prayed and made confession and hoped. But now, he said in verse 8, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold in holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. I think in general we can say that we aren't slaves or exiles, that we're not in danger of inviting ritualistic worship, sex, and child sacrifice into but we can be in just as much danger. You know, those religions were characterized by flexibility and contextualization. Does that ring a chord? Ring a bell? Does that strike a chord with anybody? I imagine most of us in this room are familiar with the term creep, uh, mission creep for those military types. But for the uninitiated, scope creep in project management terms, refers to changes, continuous or uncontrolled growth in a project's scope at any point after the project begins. Put another way, scope creep is what happens when people start having, oh yeah, moments as a project progresses and begin adding a little bit here, making a little change there, and before long, the project is over budget, over time, out of control to the point that the project is no longer recognizable or even possibly relevant. This, in a very real sense, is how scope creep can affect our spiritual lives. This is how sin worms its way in, and it gets in deep. This is at the bottom, I think, of the prohibition of intermarriage for the Israelites. You know, we we talk about how the enemy knows us, knows what buttons to push to encourage our down. Forget that God knows us also. He told the Israelites not to intermarry with foreigners. God knew that to do so would be to invite the worship of foreign gods into their midst. He knew, he knew that domestic tranquility is often forged in compromise. And it would only be a matter of time before one compromise led to another to another. And the same holds true today. We live in a permissive world where truth is said to be relative, where tolerance is almost a religion, and personal context defines morality. We all know this, right? This is, this is a dead horse. That's all macro, though, right? But what about the micro? What did I learn from this passage in Ezra? Be specific about what I do and don't invite into my heart and mind. 1 Corinthians and Galatians both talk about how a little yeast works its way through the whole dough. Sin is that which pulls us or turns us away from God, and sin is a spell in scope creep. 
Merriam-Webster defines worship as extravagant respect or admiration for or devotion to an object of esteem. This is how we're supposed to relate to God. Extravagant devotion. But sin creep seeks to compromise our devotion to God in little ways at first, widening the cracks and clawing away a little bit at a time our devotion. Being men, sexual sin is always at the top of the list of our struggle, yes? But there are other less talked about things, like our choice of words, whether it's profanity or flattery or, yes, even gossip. How about little white lies, perhaps, to keep the peace? For some, we may choose to revere our families or our success, sports, entertainment, politics. How about physical fitness, video games, anger? You know, pick your poison. We get to a point where we elevate it to the level of or even above our devotion to God. One small compromise at a time. The question I found myself asking is, what have I or am I inviting into my life, into my home, that is unworthy of my devotion at the expense of my devotion to God? Because I have, haven't I? There's always something pulling my attention away. None of us are immune to the pull of the world. Even Paul said in Romans 7, 5, Do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. But, but we're not without hope or defense. We're told that we have all, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but, and don't miss this, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And here's the best part, brothers. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you don't believe that in your heart today, you need to talk to your, you need to talk to your table mates. There's some waiting for you. And guess what? There's no fine print. Yes, this is talking about salvation, but in a way it's also talking about sanctification. The well of God's grace and mercy doesn't run dry. You can't out his forgiveness. Your guilt is not more powerful than his love for you. Do you believe that? I know I struggle with that at times. I mean, how many times can you ask forgiveness of God for something before he's just... Well, Matthew 18, 21 and 22 says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and, for, and I forgive him? As many as seven times, which seemed like a lot. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seven times. Now, if, if God, if Jesus, knowing how fallible we are, asks us to extend what is essentially limitless grace to each other, how much more so will he extend grace and forgiveness to us? Jesus' death and resurrection created a new covenant and a new priest into his marvelous light. 
of which all who believe in him are members. That's you and me, brothers. And God said, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now the struggle is real. But you can be free of the guilt that binds you. So, so what have you invited? What have you invited? that has more devotion than it should? Is there something that you've elevated in your heart or mind that supplants Christ in your admiration and devotion? And how can you help your brothers face their weaknesses and encourage them toward a more extravagant devotion to God?